I'm really excited to be able to uh, speak with you all again this morning. Uh, let me open us up with a word of prayer. O oh Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord, I, I pray that uh, as we walk through uh, these passages this morning, uh, that you will convict our hearts of the things that need convicted, uh, that you will encourage us uh, with the encouragement that we need. Um, Lord, thank you for the grace that you give us, uh, despite the, the myriad ways that we sin against you. Um, Lord, thank you for uh, all these people, uh, for them gathering here together this morning. I just pray that we would glorify you with this time. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so... Um, like I said, I'm happy to be able to, to speak with you again. Uh, Justin was, was kind enough to let me tell the second half of the story uh, that I started two weeks ago. Uh, I didn't like uh, leaving it unfinished. Uh, and so uh, I'm a, a civil engineer. I'm kind of a type A uh, sort of controlling personality. And so uh, leaving a story unfinished didn't feel quite right to me. So uh, I, I'm grateful to be here again. Um, if you were here two weeks ago, you may remember that we were walking through 2 Samuel 11. Uh, that's the story of David's adultery with Bathsheba and then his attempts to cover up his sin. It ultimately culminated uh, with the arranging of the murder of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. Um, as we'll see in greater detail today, David intended for that record of his sin to be known by others. Uh, and he did that so that more people might also turn away from their sin and turn towards the Lord. Uh, as we looked at 2 Samuel 11, there was a couple of key things that we were able to take away from it. Uh, that 2 Samuel 11 helped us to uh, recognize a little bit more what sin is, how sin works, uh, and then, of course, who sins. Um, with then a little bit of that how sin works, uh, it helped us see that sin often starts when we let ourselves be in the wrong place in the right time, uh, that temptation isn't itself a sin, but it's certainly a danger that we should take seriously, and then finally, the unrepented sin uh, inspires more sin. Finally, while the story seemed to end in 2 Samuel 11 with everything working out for David, uh, he, was a, he was able to wed the woman that he had an affair with. The resulting child was born. Um, we're also told, though, right at the end, that God was not fooled by David's cover-up, but was instead displeased with David. So let's dive into 2 Samuel 12 together as we take a look at uh, a lasting record, consequences, and repentance. So verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. He came to him and said to him, There were two men in a certain city, the one rich and the other poor. The rich man had very many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing but one little ewe lamb, which he had bought. And he brought it up, and it grew up with him and his children. It used to eat of his morsel and drink from his cup and lie in his arms, and it was like a daughter to him. Now there came a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him, but he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man, and he said to Nathan, As the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Let's stop there for just a second. Uh, who was Nathan? Uh, Nathan was a counselor to David uh, and eventually Solomon as well. 
He was uh, more commonly referred to as Nathan the prophet. He probably did some learning under Samuel uh, as he performed a function for David that was very similar to the function that Samuel performed for Saul. He had already proved himself to be a messenger carrying God's word to David back in 2 Samuel 7, where he told David that God was promising to build up a house for him, uh, ultimately pointing to the coming of Jesus as Messiah. What we see Nathan doing here is ultimately uh, what prophets in the Bible do. The, the role of prophet in the Bible is less about predicting events that are to come, although that uh, is often part of their message. It's more about speaking God's truth to others. And so Nathan is here today to speak a very hard truth to David as he confronts him with his sin. Nathan surely recognizes how this confrontation might go down. He's walking into a king's palace, and he's accusing him of sin. It's a really dangerous proposition. But Nathan knows David well, and he recognizes that while David may not have the ability to see the injustice of his own actions, Nathan at least trusts that, that David has uh, the ability to see how the actions of other people violate God's justice. So Nathan starts his confrontation by telling David a story of a rich man who took something precious from a poor man, despite having more than sufficient resources of his own. Now, it's interesting. Remember, David was a shepherd as a boy. If there was ever a king who would empathize with the loss of a beloved sheep, it was David. David takes the bait, and he declares that the rich man deserves death. But that uh, this, this probably was more of a, uh, an exclamation rather than an actual pronouncement of justice. Uh, instead, he says a fourfold repayment of the loss would be just. Note that David is also not only angry at the rich man for taking the lamb from the poor man, but also for the attitude of the man because he had no pity. Uh, a couple of specific language things to note here before we move on that I think are pretty interesting. First, the use of the word took, where it talks about how the rich man took the, the sheep uh, from the poor man. Um, if you recall from 2 Samuel 11, we saw that it clearly states that David took Bathsheba. And even there, it was an echo of all the way back to Samuel's warning to the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 8, where Samuel told the nation of Israel that if they elected a king, if they, they chose to have a king instead of just trusting and following the Lord, that king would take from his subjects. And so we see that word took come up over and over again, associated with the actions of a king uh, who is acting unjustly. Second thing to point out, um, in verse 3, it talks about how the lamb used to eat and drink and lie uh, in the arms of the man. It's interesting, we actually saw that exact same progression of verbs back in 2 Samuel 11, uh, where Uriah refused to go eat and drink and lie with his wife at David's suggestion uh, because of his sense of honor. Because of this and, of course, the context, when we read 2 Samuel 12 right after 2 Samuel 11, it's pretty obvious to us what Nathan's actually talking about here, that it's tied to David's sin uh, with Bathsheba and, and the killing of Uriah. But we should recognize that it's been several months, maybe even about a year, since David's sin uh, that Nathan comes and confronts him. David has, at this point, tried to move on with his life, uh, put out of his mind as best as he can what has happened, and so this kind of blindsides him that Nathan shows up to tell his story. Um, then last thing, keep in mind David's judgment that the rich man owes the poor man fourfold. Uh, this is what seems fair to David. God's eventually going to turn David's sense of justice back on him, as we'll see in a little while.
This whole approach begs the question, the, the approach of Samuel starting with the story to try to get David's attention. Uh, why is it so easy sometimes to see the sins of other people, but it's so hard to see them in ourselves? I don't really have a great answer for that, but Jesus acknowledged that this was a problem as well um, in Matthew 7 when he talked about the need to remove the log from your own eye before you try to remove the speck uh, from a neighbor's. Um, it's a, it's a, a pervasive thing uh, throughout all of humankind that it's easier to see flaws in others. Continuing on in, in verse 7, Nathan said to David, You are the man... Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you out of the hand of Saul, and I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your arms, and gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if this were too little, I would add to you as much more. Why have you despised the word of the Lord to do what is evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, and have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the Ammonites." Now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you out of your own house, and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor, and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of the sun. For you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel and before the sun. You are the man. Try to imagine the trepidation Nathan surely must have felt at this moment. He knows David has done something wrong and that God would have him speak about it. But the whole earthly power dynamic is completely in David's favor in this situation. Nathan is in David's palace, surrounded by David's soldiers, and David has uh, all the authority necessary uh, to tell Joab, who might be right next to him, hey, go kill that guy, and that's what Joab is best at in the whole world. Nathan's confrontation here is often described as bold, and it certainly took courage to deliver this unpleasant message. Uh, but I think even more than his boldness, we should respect Nathan's faithfulness to God's direction. God told him to deliver this hard message to David, and there's no sign in Scripture of Nathan hesitating or equivocating. Remember back uh, when, when God, through the burning bush, told Moses to confront Pharaoh? How many times Moses tried to come up with excuses for, for why uh, he wasn't the right person to give that message. We don't see any of that with Nathan. It can be a really difficult message to have to deliver to tell someone that they've done wrong. But if we know our message aligns with God's truth and we do our best to carry it in love, may we be as bold and faithful as Nathan. You are the man. Try to imagine how David must have felt at this moment and during the dire pronouncements that followed. It must have felt like the walls of the palace were collapsing around him. While David had tried to move on with his life, at least outwardly, we know that the guilt of what he had done was eating away at him. We see this in verses, uh, uh, in songs that David wrote, like Psalm 32, 3 through 4, when he says, For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. David isn't just confronted with the guilt of what he's done when Nathan confronts him, but he also must immediately face the rest of God's message. It starts with a reminder to David of how good and faithful God has been to him 
He's protected him from Saul. He's raised him up, and he's committed to the Messiah coming from David's descendants. And then David's sin is laid bare as the response to God's goodness. It's interesting that David's act of adultery with Bathsheba is actually not explicitly mentioned in the condemnation passed through Nathan. But of course, that doesn't mean it wasn't part of David's sin. The way the condemnation of David is constructed here is you look at the structure and some of the repetitions, it's really focusing on two main sins. It's focusing on the murder of Uriah and then the taking of his wife. And actually of the two, uh, the murder is emphasized less. If I were the one judging the situation, I would probably focus on the murder as the, the most important thing. But why would God view the taking of Bathsheba from Uriah as ultimately David's most grievous sin that he's committed? It really goes back to Samuel's warning once again to the nation of Israel in 1 Samuel 8 that a king would take from the people of Israel. Saul proved that warning true when as a king he took what he wanted uh, and, and did at times uh, great harm to the nation of Israel and demonstrated no heart for the Lord. Prior to these events, David was a different kind of leader. He was someone who led the nation of Israel towards honoring the Lord. In taking Bathsheba from Uriah, David undermined his role of godly king, and he proved to be just another sinful king, corrupted by his own power. While David's committing of adultery and murder were sins that harmed Uriah and Bathsheba and several other Israelites and David's relationship with Joab, the root of David's sin is a betrayal of the relationship with the Lord that he had had before this, extending all the way back to when he was a faithful little boy in the fields tending sheep. When we repent of our, of our own sins, we of course need to consider those that we've harmed around us. But let's not forget that our sins grow outward from a central betrayal of the one who loves us perfectly. Whenever we sin, we're always sinning against our Creator. Finally, God, through Nathan, communicates to David some of the consequences of his sin. The sword would not depart from his house, evil would arise against him from within his own family, and his own wives would be taken from him in the sight of all Israel. As we walk through the rest of 2 Samuel, we're going to see these dire pronouncements uh, fulfilled. Several of David's sons are going to commit heinous acts of violence, betrayal, and sexual assault. According to this passage, David must weather these future events knowing that it was his own sin that inspired these consequences for him, his family, and the nation of Israel. That's going to be really hard for the rest of his life. These are heavy, heavy penalties for David's sin. But let's see what David's response is. In verse 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. Nevertheless, because of this deed, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. Then Nathan went to his house. The man after God's own heart isn't gone. He's hurt himself and others. He's lost his way. He spent a year in inner turmoil trying to forget about what he's done, and he's surely felt corruption and loss in his relationship with the Lord. But as a man after God's own heart, David responds to Nathan's condemnation here with repentance. 
we can immediately contrast David's response with Saul's back when he was similarly confronted by his sin back in 1 Samuel 15. In that instance, Saul's diso- uh, Samuel pointed out Saul's disobedience to him, and Saul responded by saying, I have sinned. But he stopped there. He missed the part that David said against the Lord. And then Saul immediately offered excuses and explanations for, for why he had sinned, and then he pleads with Samuel to forgive him so that that'll mitigate any consequences that Saul might have to experience. Saul's repentance back in 1 Samuel was all about Saul and what he feared he would lose because he had gotten caught. On the other hand, David's repentance is all about God and the close relationship that David had with him that he knows he's already lost. David offers no excuses. He requests no special treatment when he repents because he recognizes that the true harm that was done by sinning was harm between him and a loving God. We see how the Lord responds to true repentance here. The Lord is willing to put away David's sins and let him live. This is the generosity of God on display here. David's confession recognized that the greatest loss that he experienced because of his sin was his relationship with God. God immediately responds and says, I'll restore that most important thing back to you. God didn't need to do that. It would have been fair and it would have been just for him to just write off David as the second in a long line of kings who rejected the Lord and had no relationship with him. But as a precursor to the gospel that would be fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ, we see here that our loving God is willing to forgive much in order to restore David's relationship with him. As with that gospel message, though, restoration does not come without a cost. Just as Jesus' death fulfilled the penalty for our sins, David and Bathsheba's baby boy, despite his innocence in the situation, must pay the final penalty for David's sin. One last observation here about the consequences of David's sin. David, in his hypocritical sense of justice, declared that the fair penalty for the rich man taking the poor man's lamb should be a fourfold repayment. God, in his supernatural and perfect justice, pronounces that David's penalty for taking Bathsheba from Uriah would be levied against David's sons. As we'll see in a moment, the child of David and Bathsheba will die as part of this penalty. But as time passes, we'll also see that David's sons, Amnon, Absalom, and Adonijah, are all killed through David's family heritage of violence and betrayal. It's four dead sons, the fourfold penalty that David pronounced for the rich man for taking what was beloved of the poor. As Matthew 7, 1 through 2 tells us, Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Continuing in verse 15, And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child. And David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? 
he may do himself some harm. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. He then went to his own house, and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. He said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me, that the child may live. But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David understands God's pronouncement of judgment against his child. This passage is not about David thinking there might be a way he could avoid the consequences of his sin. Instead, it's a passage showing a man grieving a loss that he knows is coming and a father holding out hope for his beloved child until the very end. When Nathan's prophecy proves true and the boy dies, David's grief and his desperate prayer for mercy end. But that's not the end of the story. In verse 24, it says, Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son, and he called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet. So he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Look, even this isn't the end of David's story, but it definitely is the end of this particular chapter of it. Note that these things don't really happen instantaneously. The events that are described in verses 24 and 25 here occur at least months and most likely years after verse 23. But they're included at the conclusion of this account in 2 Samuel to make a point. God's forgiveness of us is complete. The consequences God pronounced were still in effect, but the Lord doesn't hold grudges. He only has grace for the repentant sinner. Jedidiah means loved by the Lord. That God would choose to raise up another of David's sons through Bathsheba to be his beloved heir instead of any of the other sons that David had through his other wives and concubines, is meant to make a point to us that when we repent of our sins and our relationship to God is repaired, he's ready and willing to give us an abundant life. And his restoration process promises to exceed all of our expectations. So what can we learn? Uh, from 2 Samuel 12. Looking back at that story that we just went through, I think there's a couple of main points that are, are worth reflecting on a little bit more. The first one is that the consequences of our sins are greater than we may imagine. Surely David, at some point, considered the potential consequences for his sins on himself, Bathsheba, and, and Uriah. And then he ultimately judged that those consequences would be acceptable losses to obtain what he wanted. Maybe he figured that it would be worth a little regret and relational harm to indulge his impulsive desire to sleep with a woman he found attractive. Maybe he figured that it would also be worth a little regret and relational harm to try to deceive Uriah 
in order to quietly cover up the situation. And then we know that when that didn't work, he figured it would be worth the life of one man to avoid a disruption that would stain the reputation of the king of Israel and the reputation of the woman with whom he now shared a child. Look, sometimes when we sin, we do it impulsively and reactively and really without any consideration of consequences. That's the, the sin nature that's inside of us, um, ready, to, ready to respond. But other times, I think that we try to do the calculus ourselves to determine whether the wrong that we may do could ultimately be worth uh, the, the trade that we make. We try to be like God, and we try to predict what will happen. We pretend that we're wise enough to make judgment calls that can justify our sins. It's a pretty clear message from the Bible that that's foolishness on our parts. Many of these consequences that David and his family experienced had their roots in the actions David chose. They didn't really need any supernatural intervention. Two weeks ago, we talked about David's progression of sins as being like damage occurring in a dam. At this point, David's sins have already caused the dam to fail. The water has escaped and is rushing down through the valleys wrecking havoc. And David's repentance at this point is not enough to stop the, that consequential flood. David's bad relationships with his wives became bad relationships between he and his children. His inability to use good judgment regarding his own actions became an inability to use good judgment regarding the actions of his children. The same kinds of deception and manipulation and violence that David embraced through his sins will be displayed by his various sons in the years ahead of him. David's relationship with Joab has begun to fracture as a result of these events, and it leads to several bigger problems down the road. God didn't have to do much intervention in order to curse David's household and cause years of strife and bloodshed. David's sins were enough to do that on their own. Our God who exists outside of time, who knows all and sees all, who tells us not to sin, does this because he loves us, and he doesn't want to see us harm ourselves or others by the consequences of our actions. We should take his commands far more seriously than we do. We should recognize that we are incapable of judging what the full consequences of our actions will be. And that's before we even recognize the most significant consequence of our sin, the one that always follows, that we damage our relationship with the holy God. Uh, a consequence so harmful that it required the death of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as repayment for our disobedience. The consequences of our sin are so much greater than we may imagine. Second point that I want to look at here is that there's a place for guilt and grief in the life of a Christian, but not shame. And this is uh, going back to David's uh, response to the, the penalty that's uh, levied against his small child. As we saw in Psalm 32, David was consumed by guilt over the sins that he had committed. Unfortunately, this guilt was not enough to inspire him towards repentance before being confronted by Nathan, but instead it was only enough to make him feel dried up and wasted. Still, though, David's guilt was definitely a motivating factor behind his readiness to respond to, to Nathan's confrontation with, I have sinned against the Lord. Now, after he's confessed his sins, then David moves into a stage of grief as he prays that God would spare his child. 
Grief is sorrow at experiencing a loss, and it's a normal response that is a part of how God created us as caring and emotional people. David prays for his son's life, but while he is doing so, he's experiencing grief because he knows that the penalty that God has already proclaimed through Nathan is going to come about. And after David's son dies, the signs of David's guilt and grief end. This is apparently such an abrupt change that it leaves the servants shocked at David's behavior. David is able to overcome his guilt and grief because he has a deep understanding of God's love for him. That's what causes his particular response. For David to continue to carry the emotional burdens after the penalty for his sins has been paid and God has forgiven him would mean that David had embraced shame instead of guilt. And we don't see that he did that here. So what's the difference between shame and guilt? Uh, Brene Brown is a sociologist. Uh, She's a speaker. She's an author of several books that I've appreciated reading. And she's committed most of her research uh, to focusing on the concepts of vulnerability and shame. While her work is ultimately secular in nature, um, I do think that she has some really simple but enlightening things to say about shame and guilt. Uh, Dr. Brown says that shame is a focus on self. Guilt is a focus on behavior. Shame is, I am bad. Guilt is, I did something bad. Guilt says, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Shame says, I'm sorry, I am a mistake. She also says, guilt gets a really bad rap. Guilt is good. Guilt helps us stay on track because it's about our behavior. It occurs when we compare something we've done or failed to do with our personal values. Now, followers of Christ will experience guilt when we sin. This is the Holy Spirit working within us, telling us that we have acted inconsistently with our profession of trust in the Lord. Experiencing guilt, while painful, is a blessing that God gives us out of love because it works to motivate us to stop doing wrong and repent. Followers of Christ will also experience grief when we lose something uh, or someone that we care about. This emotional outpouring is part of the way God made us, and it isn't wrong, as long as our period of grief doesn't begin to interfere with our ability to follow where God leads us next. We can see these ideas supported in Scripture, like 2 Corinthians 7.10, which says, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. That worldly grief is shame. And followers of Christ who have repented of our sins have been freed from it. Shame doesn't motivate us to do anything. It instead just tells us that we're worthless, and so it doesn't matter what we do. When we've accepted God's forgiveness through Christ's sacrifice, and we've become a child of God, we should recognize that children of God have no shame. We are loved, we are clean, we are washed whiter than snow. To continue to try to carry shame as a follower of Christ is to ignore the great gift that God has given us. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. As you deal with sin in your own life, listen to guilt. 
and let it move you to repentance. Grieve what you've lost for an appropriate time period and be ready to take the next steps that God has in store for you. But don't get lost in shame. Don't forget that the blessing of salvation includes a complete restoration of who you are in Christ Jesus. Finally, I think I want to point out our repentance puts us in position to experience God's grace as our our final takeaway here. The story of David's repentance is one of the clearest indicators of the coming gospel of Jesus Christ that we can find in the Old Testament. I think my favorite definition of repentance is simply a change in direction. God has been good to David, but David turned away from him. When convicted of his sin, David changed directions. And though it cost the life of an innocent person, his penalty was paid, he was forgiven, and his relationship with God was restored. Despite that restored relationship with God, he still had consequences of his sin that he had to deal with, but he also was able to experience the joy of God's salvation in new ways. God offers the opportunity for a restored relationship to each of us, but since the time of David, he's gone even one step further in his goodness. Rather than our innocent offspring bearing the burdens of our sins, God sacrificed his own innocent offspring, Jesus Christ, to pay the penalty for the sins of all people. All we have to do is repent and trust in him, and then we can forever leave our sin and shame behind. 1 John 1.9 tells us that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, like David, you've been carrying the burden of guilt over your sin to the point where you're feeling weak and wasted away, there's no time like the present to recognize that you are the man or you are the woman to then change directions by confessing your sin against the Lord and to begin experiencing a life full of God's grace. Revisiting one of the main points I made uh, early today and then even two weeks ago, uh, why make a lasting record of this story? Why, why does this story exist in 2 Samuel? When we look at uh, Chronicles, we, we see a, a gap uh, where this story could exist. Um, if you recall, I mentioned that we know this story because David wanted it to be told. As a man after God's own heart, David wanted to see his own experiences with sin repentance, and God's grace memorialized in order to help other people recognize their need to repent. Brene Brown also once said this, the two most powerful words when we're in struggle are me too. David understood how helpful his story could be to other people who were struggling, who wanted to have their relationships with God restored And so he's willing to create a lasting record of his own struggles. We see the clearest evidence for this idea that David wanted the story to be told in Psalm 51. Most versions of the Bible include some sort of a note at the beginning that describes how David wrote this psalm after he was confronted by Nathan the prophet. Just imagine, Nathan leaves the palace and David's son gets sick and dies, as we saw in the story. But afterward, David, only recently having come out of his grief, pens a new song. He takes it to his chief musician, and he asks him to put together an arrangement and plan a concert. The chief musician must have been bewildered as he read these lyrics. 
Surely he told David, you don't need to do this. Look, all of Israel's willing to just forget about what you've done. Uh, We support you. We'll do it for your sake. But David says, no, sing it. Sing it over and over, even after I'm dead and gone. I want everyone to know what I did. And more importantly, I want everyone to know about the grace God has given me despite my terrible sins. So we're going to take a look at Psalm 51 together. Um, Consider, as we do, consider whether these are words that you need to say to the Lord today too. David's song goes like this. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth and the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then... I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise.